What's up, Overcomers? This is the Overcoming You podcast. I am your host, Josh Canuti. On this podcast, we talk about what I think is the most important thing in this world, which is what we think about ourselves when we are by ourselves. And today, I am super, super excited for my guest. I love talking to people in this space with a deep, deep knowledge. Just some of his background, he's a PhD psychologist in the Southern California area. He does both in-person and online psychotherapy. He's a TEDx speaker, he has a fantastic YouTube channel. He's a host of the one of the best podcasts in the self-help space called Hardcore Self-Help. He's a keynote speaker. He's been featured on basically every single thing you could think of, which would take me too long to list all of them, but some of them include Healthline, How Stuff Works, New York Times, Vice. He's the best-selling author of the Hardcore Self-Help series, and he has a couple books, which I fucking love the title, which is Fuck Anxiety and Fuck Depression. Please welcome PhD psychologist Robert Duff. And so when you're somebody's spouse, partner, best friend, what have you, you're, you're sort of in that eye of the storm with them, if not very close to it. And so you don't have the same ability to, to help as you would as a professional. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> that was quite an intro. That makes me feel uh, really good. I guess I have done a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Your content and everything on there is really, really cool. I'm really, really excited to have you on. So I kind of wanted to start, since you have such a elevated knowledge than myself, what's kind of your thought process or the state of uh, mental health, depression, anxiety? What are you seeing from your clinical perspective? You know, I think I think we're in an interesting spot with that. You know, um, social media is something that is something that I think is it's just like in history going to be on par with like the industrial revolution, you know, it, it's changed fundamentally how we interact with each other, how we understand the world. And so I sort of have um, mixed feelings about where mental health fits into there. You know, I think that on one hand, we have a, a much greater awareness of the fact that mental health issues exist. You know, uh, it wasn't so long ago that these things were not talked about as much. And there were a lot of people who, particularly within like the anxiety sphere or people who have really silent struggles and maybe they're keeping to themselves a lot, they tended to feel like they're alone, you know, but now with social media, they can see that they're absolutely not alone. And, you know, the internet in general, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot more content that's available to help people help themselves, you know, like this podcast. Um, at the same time, I think that there is a little bit of um, hyper awareness about certain things. You know, um, it's very, very easy to sort of web MD yourself and find symptoms of things mm -hmm. that are uh, very, very scary to yeah. you. And so I think overall, like the direction of mental health is is positive. I think that many people who didn't have resources before now have resources. Uh, I think there are some things to watch out for. And I think that one thing that my field, the field of mental health is sort of lagged behind in is sort of integrating social media, the internet and the way people live now into like treatment and self-help type things. Because, you know, I, like in my book, I, I talk about managing email, for instance, or, mm -hmm. or how to, you know, do stuff when you're working at home by yourself. That's a whole realm of things that is new, but it has to be integrated into mental health and, and, and treatment and what you're doing with yourself. So, you know, I think that we're in a really, really interesting time. I don't have a sort of positive or negative opinion about mm -hmm. it on the whole, but I think that it's just a very interesting time. You know, you touch on something. I want to get to a story that we that we talked about or that you've talked about on your TEDx, but you touched on something there that's been really, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is the effects of social media 
on our mental health. Now, I, I always preface this when I'm on this podcast and I talk about this. I am so excited, so glad, and so happy that social media exists, and I'm excited for where it's going to go and what else is coming, at, coming around the corner that I don't want it to go away. However, I feel like we need to figure out how to deal with it because it's so relatively new. And, you know, some of the coming out of it seem to allude to the fact that social media is having a a effect on our depression, especially with young adults. Have you drawn that conclusion to yourself? You know, I I don't know. It's really hard to to determine, you know, even with scientific research, you know, if this is having a negative effect on depression or if it's just sort of being drawn into the light more, um, if certain things are being highlighted, you know. But I think social media is something that, again, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about it. It's positive in that people don't feel alone. It's it's also negative in some cases when people have uh, just exposure to things that they don't need to have exposure to at every single moment. You know, like, for instance, learning how to manage it, meaning, you know, when you wake up in the morning or wake up in the middle of the night, you know, one thing people do is they sleep with their phones next to their bed. Mm-hmm. They use that as an alarm clock. And so they that's their excuse, at least, you know, so they sleep with their phone next to their bed. They can't sleep at two o'clock in the morning, so they go open up social media, you know, they open up Facebook, they see some ignorant comment on Facebook that they start getting pissed off about and suddenly they can't sleep anymore or suddenly they're in this spiral in their head, you know, thinking about things that aren't really conducive to rest. So I agree that it's something that basically it it is what it is. Like it's not going away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's like it it, to me, it's like the people who, you know, say, you know, I'm not going to let my kid touch an iPad for the first 12 years of their life or something like that. Well, they're going to be left behind because that is what's happening now. So I think it would be sort of dumb to ignore the fact that social media exists in the way that it does. And it will change over time. But but instead of pretending like it's not there learn how to deal with it, you know, and that's going to be different for each individual. But again, I think that's something that we sort of need to integrate into the whole mental health spectrum is how to work with this thing that does exist. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on something really cool there. So I'm 37 right now and I'm at my wife and I, we don't have any kids just yet, but all of my surrounding friends have kids and they're all growing, growing up and stuff like that. And you know, a lot of the parents are starting to talk about the self-image of the kids, and they're like worried about. Uh, they're all saying, "Put the screen down, put the screen down." You got to have, have connection and all that type of stuff. And I, obviously, I'm speaking at a school because I don't have kids, but mm-hmm. it's almost like they want the interaction or they want the the relationship that they want, not that the kids have. And so you said, like, you know, if you take the iPad away, you're almost kind of like hindering them a little bit because they're going to use that for the rest of their life and even more so. So I think it's like just because they're not getting what they want, they're telling their kids not to do it. Anyway, that's just what it's, it, it's, a, it's kind of a quintessential, like generational thing. You know, uh, when new things come out, there's always going to be a bit of lag time in adjusting to it, or there's going to be a difference in understanding it, especially like, you know, I guess you and I are probably in a, in an interesting subsection where we can use these technologies and we're very fluent in them probably, but we weren't brought up on them. That's not native, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and even things like a touchscreen, like a touchscreen is, um, 
you know, a, a lot of a lot of parents will will acknowledge this that their kid will go up to the TV and try to touch it, or you know, they'll they'll get some sort of physical medium and try to swipe through it because that's just very intuitive for yeah. how they work, you know. So it is the reality of 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 what's going on one way or another, and I. I think that there's a good balance to be had. I think that for anything that happens, any new technology, any new anything, there's going to be a swing very far to one direction. And then it's going to start coming back to hopefully some sort of happy medium. And with regard to, you know, interactions with other people, I, I think that right now we need to acknowledge that online interactions are are valid as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said in the intro, I do online therapy. I've done even therapy through sort of text-based mediums. And there's like a lot of apps that do that as well. Um, there's nothing that doesn't count about that. That's still real interaction. So, yeah. you know, you'll hear teenagers kind of make the joke sometimes that it's like, well, you know, what, what do you guys do? You guys like, like to their parents or, or older people. It's like, you'll, you'll sit together and watch TV next to each other in silence. I'm sitting here on my phone and I'm interacting with all of my friends in a meaningful way, right. <laughs> you know? So Good I think point. it's just important not to make assumptions about what that sort of technology is or does. Yeah. Good point. Good point. You actually have a really interesting kind of backstory. So not only are you board certified PhD in this space, but you also have experienced it with a loved one as far as depression, anxiety, some of those uh, other powerful thoughts. Can you uh, touch on that uh, topic a little bit? I know that's in your TED, TED talk, which is fantastic, by the way. But can you touch on that? Because I think it's really, really cool that you have both sides of the fence type of thing. Yeah. And, and to be clear, like, I'm no secret to I, so I'm somebody that I'm not going to claim to have a psychological disorder because I don't, you know, but I am I'm certainly no stranger to things like panic attacks or, you know, really, really strong anxiety during certain points in my life. So it's not like I'm, I'm immune to those things. Um, but but yeah, we're, we're kind of alluding to uh, my wife. So my wife, Joelle, I've, I've been with her since I was. God, what, 15? Oh, <laughs> I've wow. been with her for a very long, really long time. We were, we were, you know, high school sweethearts and then we went to college together and, um, you know, we've, we've been married for quite a while now. We've been doing that whole thing, but as part of your training in becoming a psychologist, so in a PhD program, you have to do a few years on campus and then you do what's called a pre-doctoral internship and then a postdoctoral internship. So there's like your last year and then your first year after graduating. And it's basically uh, a year of working full time for, you know, not quite enough pay, you mm -hmm. know, being kind of overworked and underpaid. And and so during my pre-doctoral internship, we were living in uh, San Diego, California, and we had moved from a, a place that we kind of made our home, which was uh, Ventura, California. So we, we moved from there to San Diego and it, it just, the vibe wasn't great. Uh, we were having some hard time in our relationship in general. Uh, my wife, Joelle has, has anxiety. She's had significant anxiety, you know, basically all throughout her life. Um, even going back to just being kind of a shy, nervous kid in childhood. And so the combination of being in this place where uh, we were in this kind of like little tiny one bedroom apartment with zero natural light. And I know that sounds like a, a, it doesn't make big difference, but it really does. You know, when you have to kind of look outside and go step out into the courtyard to see what time of day it is without looking at a clock, mm -hmm. it, it does kind of mess with you, you know? Yeah. So we felt like we were in this little cave. It was a smaller place than we were used to. Um, we were farther away from our support network and things sort of built up a bit. You know, like I said, we weren't having the best time in our relationship and all of these things were just compounded by having to move, by me being gone and working this much for, you know, not enough pay to really sustain us, all yeah. sorts of stuff like that. And what it culminated in was after after a few kind of explosive incidents, uh, my wife was developing um, suicidality. So she was having thoughts of 
um, you know, I wish this would just go away. I kind of wish I could, I could just sleep and, and, and make it all go away. And she certainly had no uh, access to firearms or something like that, but she is on medication and, and, and she could have certainly done that through medication. And there were a few instances where maybe too much Xanax was taken just to sort of start over the next day. And that was becoming a bit worrying. Mm-hmm. And so we went into basically an emergency session with a, a psychiatrist through through her healthcare organization. And, you know, they were asking the appropriate questions about, you know, do you feel safe? Are you thinking about killing yourself? And, and she was honest about it. Um, and she was sort of on that borderline, you know, of she wasn't actively making a plan like she was going to kill herself, but she was definitely waffling. You know, it was sort of a, yeah, you know, I, there wasn't certainty there. Right. And so the psychiatrist that we were working with felt like it would be appropriate for her to to be hospitalized. And she didn't disagree with it. You know, she was crying and it was, it was a really emotional incident, but we both went along with it. Right. And I think part of that was because it was being taken seriously, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. even, yeah. even though it, for a lot of people being hospitalized kind of sounds like, okay, you know, the SWAT team's going to roll in and take you out and, and, and strap you down and drive you off to some mental hospital. It's not a dramatic process like that. And in some ways it's just giving that really big acknowledgement that what you're experiencing is real, that you're really struggling. And yeah, so, so she did go to the hospital for, for a few days and that was, that was really tough. There was a whole bunch of other stuff in the background that happened while, while that was going on. Um, she's a wedding planner and she had kind of a string of really, really demanding and, and, and difficult clients before that happened. And that was also a contributor. Um, but while she was in the hospital, I actually had to go down and, and like do a wedding for her oh, um, wow. because she, she couldn't, she couldn't do it. She had yeah. no choice after that. You know, it's a involuntary hold. So she can't be like, Hey, let me leave for today and then come back after this wedding's done. So, you know, it's a whole bunch of stuff. But, um, the thing is she's had anxiety for a long time. She's had, you know, the, the issues that she lives with for a long time and she's been successful. She's, you know, college graduate, started an amazing business, has been able to, you know, start and sell websites, self-teach herself a ton of stuff. So, you know, it frustrated me that somebody who is so smart, so intelligent, so ambitious couldn't make the best use of the resources that were given to her because mm-hmm. she had resources, you know, things right. like her, um, the, the books that she was recommended by her therapist. She'd gone to therapy, you know, she had uh, consumed a lot of self-help stuff, but nothing was really hitting the mark. And, you know, so when she came out of the hospital, we clearly, you know, had a lot of conversations about this. And there was just kind of one conversation where I think I was reviewing um, the the guide on anxiety that she had gotten from the psychiatrist or was recommended to her by the psychiatrist. And I was reading through it and it was just so dense mm-hmm. and exhausting that I was like, you know, I'm about to get my doctorate in this stuff and I don't know what the fuck they're trying to talk about <laughs> here. Right. You know, it, it was just, it was just unapproachable and right. long, you know, yeah. the thing, the, the thing that I think, and I know I'm, I'm rambling here, but no, you know, no, this is my show now. So yeah. no, no, please. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the thing that that I think in the field of psychology, we, we really, really, really focus on empathy. So trying to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and imagine what they're going through. But for some reason that doesn't come through in the content that we make, because if you think about it, if someone's struggling with anxiety or depression to a really significant level, to the point that they're going to get this, you know, this guide on it, 
they're not going to be mentally clear enough or they're not going to have enough energy to, to blast through this giant textbook. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a problem because they're going to start it and then they're going to get discouraged by how unapproachable it is. And so, you know, this is the stuff we were talking about and I was kind of explaining it in the way that I explain it to people, you know, and with my therapy patients or friends or, you know, people online, my approach is always trying to be a real person about it and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, use language that's clear and explain things in a way that's like not, it's just so academic that it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so I was doing that and she's like, you know, you, she's like, you should just do that. You should just make that thing. And I'm like, yeah, I should just like make a book that's just like, you know, screw your brain, fuck anxiety. She's like, yeah, do that. Yep. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And, and like a week later the book was out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, you have one thing that's really, really cool, and I'm really glad you did it. So I know you and I don't know each other that well, but some of the listeners have already heard this, that I have I was actually in your wife's shoes. So yeah, you have something on your, on your website, and uh, it'll be in the show notes and all that type of stuff, but you have a, a letter titled uh, How to mm-hmm. Explain Anxiety, and this letter is to be used for someone like your wife or someone like me to give to somebody to give to your loved ones to kind of help explain that a little bit. And I just thought that was really, really cool of you to do and really, really helpful because I wish I had that letter back when I was going through my struggles and stuff to give to my wife or give to my uh, best friends and stuff like that. So kudos yeah. to you and thank you for doing that. It's really, really you're, cool. you're a hundred percent not alone in that. You know, it's, it's one of the, the top like visited pages on my website too. So I have both, um, I have a letter like that for anxiety, which came up during the second edition of the book. Once I, once I started, like I put out the book, started establishing an audience and I could ask the audience, what would you put in like the next edition? And that was the suggestion is, is some way to explain what's going on because that's a problem a lot of people have. And honestly to themselves too, you know, if, if you don't have a family that talks about these issues a lot, or you don't have any firsthand experience with other people, at least that you know of that have talked about it openly, you don't really know what the hell is going on in your body and with yeah. you anyways. So you're like, am I lazy? Am I, um, just some sort of coward? Like, am I just making a big deal about nothing, whatever? Yep. And so, yeah, I mean, so many people online are searching for like either what's going on when this is happening. Like what, what is this anxiety or how do I tell my family about my anxiety or how to explain my anxiety or depression or, you know, fill in the blank. So a lot of people now will Google that, will find that letter and then we'll come to look at other content of mine, which yep. is like the best possible pipeline I could think of because that's exactly what I would hope for. Yeah. I want to ask you, so I, I feel like there's a lot of help out there for the individuals like myself or like your wife or the everyone else kind of in there. But I wanted to ask you, how did you feel going through that? And that had, that must have been a little bit difficult, maybe play, do the comparison game, but a little bit more difficult than, you know, maybe say my wife, because you're, you're the person that's, that's in this field. So sure, how did you yeah. feel going through that? And what did you, looking back, what would you have done differently? Or what, what would you have wished you had help with or, or whatnot? Yeah, do it over. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of phases to to that of even during that time how I felt about it. You know, like initially I felt like anybody's gonna blame themselves to an extent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you're right. I'm the I'm the person who's supposed to be an expert in this and I can't even help my own family, you know. But then again, after that sort of initial very emotionally driven thought process 
subsides, you know, I, I recognize that nobody is their family's therapist. That's, you can't be, that's not how it works. You know, any, just like a professional, you know, you're, you, most professionals aren't going to serve their direct family members because there's just some X factor that doesn't make that work. And I'm in the eye of the storm with her. So yeah. I can't be on the outside, you know, with, with therapy or any sort of objective person from the outside that you're getting help from, they're outside that storm that's going on. And that's why they're able to help you out. And, and so much, it's not even, you know, telling you what to do to help you out. It's just sort of presenting the situation back to you in a way that's a little bit more objective or external. You know, my, my advisor back when I was in grad school said, my job is to present you back to you, but slightly rotated, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I kind of agree with that. And so when you're somebody's spouse, partner, best friend, what have you, you're, you're sort of in that eye of the storm with them, if not very close to it. And so you don't have the same ability to, to help as you would as a professional. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it sucked. I felt really sad. I felt really bad and, and I still do, but I, I, as with anybody who's in a relationship with somebody with, with mental health issues, if you both do just one of you do, whatever the case is, you, the other person's feelings are something that you can care about and you can try to keep in mind and help with, and you know that you have influence over them and that's a responsibility of yours, but their feelings themselves are not your responsibility, you know, and you can't totally take that onto yourself. Otherwise you start reaching kind of a codependency, you know, where your emotional state and their emotional state are, are completely intertwined. So, yeah. you know, you have to let a little bit of that, a little bit of that go and not delude yourself into thinking that, you know, I, I don't want to delude myself into thinking that there was something that I could have done to prevent that from happening. Maybe this is exactly what needed to happen yeah. because she doesn't regret it. You know, um, in the hospital, nothing that was done there was revolutionary. Nothing that was done there in the hospital was uh, something that like a technique that was going to serve her for the rest of her life or anything like that. Sometimes that does happen. Sometimes people get a really good counselor that teach them something that they just never thought of, whatever. But for her, she described it like um, when you break a bone and it's not healing properly, how you have to re-break it in order yeah. for it to set correctly. And that's kind of how she described that is it was more of a symbolic thing. Like this was re-breaking that bone so that it could set correctly. And, you know, I have pretty strong confidence that she will never end up in the hospital again because of that. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, doesn't fix everything. She's still someone that struggles with anxiety. She will forever, you know, um, but she's, she's different now than she was prior to that in, in a way that's really, really impactful. Yeah. That's a really, really good analogy you know, just resetting that because I, I agree. I'm uh, in the same thought process. I don't regret, you know, going to those depths of that darkness, but because I feel like it's made me a stronger, like literally, I know that kind of sounds like cliche or something you hear on a, a movie or something like that, but it's really true. It really does. I felt like that my mental fortitude has been set stronger now and yeah. Hey, I still have ups. I still have downs, all that type of stuff, but I don't think I'll ever get to those um, depths of the, that darkness again. So I, that's a really, really good analogy. Yeah. And you know, I guess if, if there was anything that I, I don't think I could have done it too differently going back, but if there were more supports, you know, like more, if there was just more of a consistent check-in with people other than me, perhaps that could have been helpful, right? You know, just when we struggle with things in isolation, that's when they become more scary, more dangerous. And it's sort of like, you know, when someone has 
depression or anxiety, sitting with your own thoughts can be scary because when yes. you have that blank open space, it just, they're going to go wherever they're going to go and they can kind of build up and spiral. And yes. so just like when you're dealing with in the same way, you know, when you're dealing with these symptoms and, um, maybe some scary thoughts, maybe some confusing thoughts, and you don't have multiple people, if not just one person that's outside of that eye of the storm, again, like I said, that you trust, that you believe in, that can give you some feedback on that, or that can at least hear you, mm -hmm. that becomes, you know, more scary. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question. One thing that I, I don't think people go and get help for depression, anxiety, or say, you know what? Yes, I have anxiety, or yes, I have mental health issues. I don't think they get enough credit for how brave that is. And that's not, I'm not saying that to be biased to myself or like pad my stats or something like that. But I think there's a lot of people out there going through that that don't know that they are going through that. And yeah. so if you were to, what are some things if you're going to talk to the audience about, hey, if you're doing these things or if you're, you're talking this way or if you're exuding these signs, there may be a possibility that you're in a depressive state or you're anxiety or, or unhappy or whatever. So what are some people that they could with some signs or some things to, to look yeah. at. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that for sure. Uh, before that, just in, in regard to what you just said prior, I just want to throw it out there that professional help is self-help. I consider them to be the same thing, you know, because yes. a lot of people will get down on themselves thinking that if they have to see a professional, that means they've failed in some sort of way. Yep. But that's it's that's not the case at all, right? You know, anybody, well, not anybody being reasonable, but, you know, many, many, many people have access to these tools. And, and one of those tools is therapy or psychiatry. But you have to make the choice to follow through with that. You have to make the choice to make good use of that. And so it's a tool just like any other tool that you might use. And you have to be the one in control of that. So professional help is self-help. It's not a failure to use your tools. It's one of those tools and it's the more responsible thing to do if that's what you need. Yeah. It's, um, it's the exact same way as physical health. You know, just cause I go get a trainer doesn't mean that I'm worse off. If I were to tell people that, I mean, I have a Muay Thai trainer, I tell people that, oh, that I go, Oh, that's rad. They never look down upon me or I never right. look down upon myself, but for some reason, I, I'm so excited that you are glad that you said that. But when you reach out to that, cause I felt that way when I went to my first therapy session, I was like, Oh, I'm weak. I messed up. I, I can't do this on my own. I'm, you know, this made me feel even worse. Luckily enough, I had a really, really good therapist that did amazing and still see her today. So thank you for, for saying that just because you're getting professional help doesn't mean that you're less than or, or, or weak. So it's really Yeah. Good. The, the physical health thing is, is, is often a really good analogy, you know, to try to say, okay, if this was a physical issue rather than a mm. mental issue, like, would I be treating myself the same way? And for you, you know, with a, with a Muay Thai teacher, uh, yeah, going to get a trainer doesn't mean that you're an idiot and couldn't figure out how to kick because of videos on YouTube, mm -hmm. you know, it, that, that you wouldn't even think that you'd be like, okay, yep. well, this just makes sense to get a trainer because yep. I want to learn this. So yeah, hundred yep. percent. So in regard to like signs, symptoms to watch out for, yep. you know, there's, there's a variety of different symptoms that can obviously pop up. And I think most people in general are familiar with kind of the symptoms of anxiety. They're with, with either of these, like, you know, anxiety, depression, those are obviously the most common types of mental disorders, but you know, there are many others as well. Um, there's sort of a, a cognitive component, meaning your, your thoughts, and there's a more, you know, emotional component and, and, you know, also a physical component to some of these. So, you know, with anxiety, for instance, you might have a lot of worries. You might have a lot of trepidation about things that might happen. You know, if I go here, X, Y, Z may occur. So I'm not going to do that. 
Um, you also have physical symptoms like muscle tension, like, you know, trouble breathing, lots of wacky stuff that can happen, tingling in your feet, in your fingers, feeling like you're disconnected from reality. So there's lots of symptoms out there and, and people are, are, are pretty familiar with a lot of those, I think. Uh, one thing that people tend to not be familiar with is kind of the more physiological symptoms of depression. So especially for, and this is stereotypical, but a lot of guys or people that, you know, present more masculine or have more of that personality, uh, they may not recognize depression because they're not sort of crying all the time. Mm -hmm. And for a certain subset of people, which is, which is relatively large, the depression looks more like having uh, low energy, having really low motivation, um, not feeling pleasure from things that used to be pleasurable, you know, watching, uh, go, you're not really wanting to go watch movies or, you know, go out playing hockey with your friends or, you know, dancing or whatever it was that, that used to make you feel good. You're just sort of turning that down more often because it feels like meh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's neither good nor bad. It's just sort of bland. Um, and so a lot of people don't recognize that that's actually a type of depression because they're like, well, I'm not crying. I'm not, I don't want to hurt myself. So that must mean that I'm not depressed. Right. So that's, that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't really recognize. And for any of this stuff where you want to be concerned is when it's starting to really impact you. Like if it's starting to impact, for instance, your ability to attend school or work, if you find yourself calling out sick because, you know, you're, you're, you're so worried about this upcoming project that you're sick to your stomach and you can't get out of the bathroom in the morning or something like that. Mm -hmm. When it's starting to affect your ability to uh, tolerate people in your job and so you're snapping at people and maybe doing things that are that are going to get you in trouble with your boss, uh, when you're missing class, things like that, where it's affecting your actual life. Um, relationships as well. You know, if it's affecting your interpersonal relationships, your uh, romantic relationships, relationships with family, with friends, if, if you're, you know, having to cut ties or you're getting in lots of arguments or the quality of things are just decreasing, that's mm -hmm. something to watch out for. Um, and, and the, the, the sort of indicator that I think does not get enough respect mm -hmm. is how much it's affecting you. Like, like your internal sense of how much this sucks. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't really give, give enough credit for, you know, it, how painful is this for you? So there's a lot of people out there who are, they're going to do what it takes no matter what, like take a single mom, for instance, you know, uh, there's going to be a single mom out there who has rampant anxiety, you know, feels really depressed because they're ashamed of the things that their anxiety is, has caused them to do or not do. Um, but there's no way in hell they're going to let their kid go hungry. You know, there's right. no way in hell they're not going to show up to work or do these certain things because, you know, survival wise, they have no other choice. Of course. But so, so on, you know, on paper, you know, those, those things may not be impacted because they're not going to let that happen, but internally they feel terrible, you know, they feel really, really bad and they're suffering and that has to matter too. Yeah. That's those are some really, really good data, data points there. So you're sitting there, you're listening to this podcast, you go, wow, I have a couple of those signs talked about how reaching out for help is not a, a weak thing. It's actually a positive thing. It's actually an empowering thing. So you're going to go pick someone to talk to, pick a therapist. From your perspective, What? how should somebody do that? What's some questions they should ask? Or do you have any sort of places that people should go look to try to pick a therapist that's right for them if they need help? What would you suggest to get the right one? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I actually, I do have a, a little bit of a resource for this. If you go to my website, which is DuffThePsych.com, um, and then it's uh, DuffThePsych.com slash find a therapist. Uh, I kind of actually walk people through, I think I have a video on there showing kind of step-by-step one of the good methods to find a therapist. It, 
to be clear, this is going to vary from region to region. You know, mm -hmm. like my knowledge of this is, is very USA centric. Um, sure. In other countries, there's a different process for it. But, uh, you know, at least in the US, there's a, a really great tool that's called Psychology Today. It's a magazine, but they also have a website where they have a, a find a therapist tool. And there's going to be a few other ones that are like that. So if you're if if that doesn't do the trick for you, because that doesn't show everybody mm -hmm. um, that only shows people who pay into it, but that it's kind of the standard. So most people are going to um, therapy most therapists are going to. Um, but you can also, so say you live in Orange County, California, you can go to the Orange County Psychological Association or, you know, the whatever Broward County Psychological Association website, and they're going to have a search as well for local mm -hmm. providers. So between Google, those websites, there's certainly going to be other search engines like that out there. They're really helpful because what you can do is you can put in the radius from your, from your home that you would be willing to travel. You can put in what type of issues you might be dealing with. You can put in your insurance if you have insurance so that you can find people who are not, you're not going to have to pay a ton of money for. And then it'll give you sort of a result. And on those pages, usually there's a profile. So once you once you get the search results, it'll have a, a photo of them and then, you know, some information that they write about their approach, where they went to school, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in this day and age, I think it's it's a massive mistake for a therapist to not have a website. Yeah. Unfortunately, some do not. But to me, having a website and even at, at, to some extent like a social media presence is really, really helpful and important because as therapists, we have lots of techniques. We have lots of things that we've learned in grad school to, to, to do to help people. But what the research shows is that that only has a very small percentage in terms of what actually causes someone to change. Mm -hmm. The things that actually help somebody change through therapy are um, one, the relationship they're able to develop with their therapist, um, and two, the expectation they have about it. So if they feel like this person is going to be able to help them out, chances are that's going to happen. Um, and vice versa, if they think they're not going to be able to, well, chances are they're not going to make a lot of change. Yeah. So you know, one thing that I've found for, for myself personally is that since I've started putting out this you know, psychology, mental health, uh, emotional content through my books, podcasts, et cetera. Um, a lot of the people that I work with now are people that found me through that medium. Mm -hmm. And so they already know what I'm all about. They know how I approach things. They know the type of language that I use. Good point. They, you know, they have a, a sense of my personality. And yeah. so when we start therapy, you know, we hit the ground running and, and we can kind of skip a few of the steps for that initial relationship building phase. Yeah. So, you know, not everybody's going to be like that, but definitely, I think it, it makes so much more sense to for, for you to look for a match rather than just asking your doctor for whoever they use. Like uh, you can go to your primary care doctor and say, okay, uh, I think I need a referral to a therapist. And they'll say, okay, um, try this one out. And so mm -hmm. you'll go to them and it's sort of a crapshoot. With insurance companies, sometimes there's a cert there are certain bounds where maybe you have to ask for a referral. Maybe you're going to be um, trying somebody out that's that's within your network first. But you always have a little bit more control than it seems. You yeah. know, say you have like a, a really tight, you know, HMO program and you're only allowed to go to certain therapists. Well, you're still allowed to switch therapists if you find that you don't have a good match when you get there. Yeah. So, you know, do your due diligence, you know, uh, search for the people in your area, look at their website, look at whatever they have online, whether they have videos or anything like that. Get a sense of, of whether you feel like you would jive as a person with them. And if that lines up, if you feel like they would work well with you and they treat the condition that you're that you're looking to get treated for then make, you know, make a phone call or a lot of times you could even send an email or a message if you're, if you're a little bit nervous about the phone and, and set something up. Yep. 
Yeah, and I can attest to psychology today. That's actually how I find uh, or found my um, current uh, therapist. So definitely, definitely uh, really good resources and definitely check out his resource on his uh, website. Once again, I'll put that in the show notes. Speaking of that, uh, I have two last questions. But before I do that, where can uh, everybody find you and where can everyone get, get all your stuff and all that type of stuff? Because you've got some awesome resources. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so so my website is a good hub. So if you go to like duffthepsych.com slash start here, uh, there's like a good kind of breakdown of, of the greatest hits. You know, so it has my books on there. It has uh, my TEDx talk, some of my most popular blog posts, some of my most popular podcast episodes. Um, so that's a great place to start. I'm, I'm on social media everywhere at just at Duff the Psych. Follow me on, on Twitter or Facebook, and I'm super interactive with that sort of thing, Instagram even. And then, yeah, I have a podcast. It's called the Hardcore Self-Help Podcast. It's it's a weekly show. I, I alternate back and forth between Q&A, so people write in questions, and I answer them. And then I also do interviews with people, all sorts of different people, uh, both professional and sort of individuals. Like I interviewed somebody who went through um, ketamine treatments for their anxiety, for instance, and got their personal experience from that. Yeah, I got, I got all that stuff going on. But, you know, go to social media or go to my website, and that's a good hub for, for everything else. Okay, perfect. They're kind of the same question, but for a different group of people. So what's one or two tips or tricks or some things to assist in building self-esteem, both as an adult? So what tip or trick would you give me to help build my self-esteem or self-worth? And then as a parent, what's a tip or trick that you can give parents to help build their kids' self-esteem or self-worth or self-image? Yeah. So so um, as humans, we, we have what's called an attention bias. And that means that, you know, with our attention, we're going to be filtering out certain things from our environment, certain things that happen to us and and disregarding other things. And so when you are somebody who has like low self-esteem or you're struggling with anxiety, you tend to have a really negative bias. So, you know, you see a situation and you pick all the negative things about it. When in reality, there's probably a lot more positive, a lot more Mm -hmm. neutral things than the negative, but you really get into that habit. So you get super, super pro, like just laser focusing, like, boom, I, you know, had a stain on my shirt during that date. So therefore the whole date was a disaster. Yeah. You know, instead of all the other evidence that might say this was actually good, despite that one little thing. And so um, one tool that I really, really, really am a fan of is is actually journaling. And uh, when I teach people to journal, I I give them a very simple format, which is uh, you kind of break up. Uh, you know, if you're just using a blank page, you break it up into a few sections. So if you like imagine a, a page, um, you know, you draw a line on like the bottom one third of the page. So like you have a little section, like a footer, and then you separate that into two sides. So you have two little boxes at the bottom. Um, and on, on one side, I usually have people just do a to-do list. So like the top one to three things that they, that they would be satisfied with getting done in the day, mm-hmm. not more than that, just like one to three things. And then on the other side, I have people write three things that they're proud of themselves for since the last time they journaled. And, and so it's something that you could certainly substitute maybe gratitude or something like that here. But I really like trying to get people to give themselves kudos because a lot of times it's such a such a thing they're not used to. Yeah. And so when they first start that, it's really, really tough. And they say, I can't think of three things like, well, that means you really need to think about it then. You know, if you can't think of three things, then that's a sign that you need to do more of this yep. because certainly you could find three things that you're proud of yourself for. And they could be big things or small things. It could be like, hey, I got up, you know, without snoozing today. And that's a huge step for me. Um, or it could be like, I nailed that job interview and that's, that's a really big thing, you know, so big or small. But every time you sit down to journal, which I suggest doing several times a week, 
write down three of those things that you're proud of yourself for since the last time you checked in. And what that does is it sort of trains your attention to be biased towards something else. And it takes practice, but you're going to be able to sort of balance out the other stuff. Um, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of being sort of rosy and optimistic and, you know, unnecessarily positive, like saying everything happens for a reason. Everything's going to be okay. If I, you know, put my mind to it, I could do anything, blah, 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 blah. I just, am more of a fan of being realistic, right? And so to be realistic, you can think that negative stuff, that's fine. But you also got to give some credit to the positive stuff because that's there too. And you would be a bad scientist if you ignored that part. Yes. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Sometimes that uh, optimistic stuff just reeks of BS and stuff like, because you have to be real. You know, sometimes everything isn't all, all rosy. It's not all perfect. Um, no, no. And, you know, and you can, they can be connected. You know, you can, I, I often suggest people change the word, but for, and, you know, it's like, I wanted to go out today, but I'm super nervous. You could say, I want to go out today and I'm super nervous. Mm-hmm. And that gives you sort of a little bit more power. If you're going through it, that it, going through with it, then it's kind of badass that like, Hey, I was nervous and I went and did this thing. Yeah. And then just the la- last question, what advice or tips and tricks would you give parents to help their kids with their self-image and self-worth because we touched on that social media thing uh, earlier today. So what advice or tips or tricks would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So one thing um, that I would like to do is is just sort of acknowledge that like no, nobody's perfect. No parent is perfect. And one thing you got to keep in mind is like we all turned out relatively OK and none of our parents were doing any of this yes. good stuff. So like we're (laughs) humans are super, super resilient, you know, and like it it takes a lot to to sort of break them. (laughs) So, so give yourself a little bit of slack in that. I I think that being realistic with them as well is helpful in language that they understand. I really think that following up on um, missteps is really important. Um, I had an interesting interview on my podcast with a um, neuroscientist and he was talking about how the brain really cues up for learning when you make a mistake rather than when you're doing something right. So when you're making a mistake, your brain opens up to learn new things. And so following up on things that may be mistakes or missteps in a way that's not super aggressive and punishy, but like, hey, like really, really cool for you to have, you know, put yourself out there and, and it didn't go quite right. But let's talk about how we can do it differently next time. Um, that helps to build I wouldn't say self-esteem, but self-efficacy. The difference Mm -hmm. being self-esteem is when you feel good about yourself. Self-efficacy is when you have confidence in your ability to adapt to things. And and really, I think that's what anybody should be looking for is, you know, I'm not going to do it right every time. I'm not going to be able to be perfect. But anything I come across, my track record shows I will be able to figure out some way to get through it Mm -hmm. and having that confidence so that you're not paralyzed by fear of, of possibly doing something wrong because you know that even if you do something wrong or something doesn't go right, there's options and you'll be able to find those options. So I I really, I really think that focusing on the self-efficacy part, you know, following up on anything that, that wasn't, you know, didn't quite hit the mark, but doing it in a positive, constructive way. And then of course, praising things that do go well too. You know, I, I don't think there's a lot of people that are like, oh, this participation trophies for everything, but I don't really think that that's a big deal. Like congratulate your kid for whatever, like be nice to them. That's going to help. But where there are these missteps, that's where there's that chance for being positive and constructive at the same time. Nice. Nice. I think that's really, really huge. Um, Self-efficacy. I I love that. Well, brother, that kind of sums up our time for today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate your insights. I absolutely love your content. Keep those YouTubes coming and those uh, that podcast coming. And uh, like I said, I'll put for all the listeners, I'll put all this information 
in the show notes. Uh, if you visit his website, he has so many resources that can really, really help help out basically in any any area or any direction that you have uh, when it comes to mental health, depression, anxiety, anything in that space. So, Robert, thank you very much, very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for your time. Cool, man. Thanks.